Alright, hey, are you up all night tossing, churning, mind racing, trouble getting to sleep, trouble staying asleep? Well, welcome, this is Sleep With Me, the podcast that's here to put you to sleep. We do it with a bedtime story. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights and press play. I'm going to do the rest. Answer your first 60 or 70 times here. You might be wondering, what's the rest? Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I said, well, Jesus, let me explain to you. What I'm going to do is uh, create a safe place. And within that safe place, or even on the periphery of a safe place, how about that use of a word? And, you know, I don't think I, I just jinxed myself, though, because uh, so there should be some word botching coming right up. That's one of my methods. But let me explain what I use word botching for. I, I create a safe place, and within the safe place, or on the periphery of the safe place, two for two on periphery, make it three for three. Uh, you could set aside whatever's keeping you up at night, whether it's uh, thinking, feeling, external noises, physical sensations, uh, coulda, woulda, shouldas, the stuff you're supposed to do tomorrow, you're traveling, you're in transit. Or you're just like, you know, really excited about, you know, say you're going on vacation tomorrow. Well, God bless you. you. You know, I'd be excited too. I understand. So what I'm going to try to do is take your mind off of stuff. I'm going to use techniques like the newly uh, christened word botching. But that's something I've been using all along. I just didn't have a term for it. Uh, lulling, soothing tones, uh, wings of pointlessness. Uh, what do we call? I, I thought we had a witty term for pregnant pauses, uh, but you know, I just use gratuitous pregnant pauses. I think, yeah, and th- those were. I just stuck a few in there, and it helped me remember. Oh yeah, if you stick a couple gratuitous pregnant pauses in there, you'll remember that they're gratuitous. And also, the, the more pauses you do, the less words you botch. I said, wow, this is like. Uh, I guess some. I said I got some teamwork going on in my brain right now. But if you're really new here, and and, and indulge me, because uh, in, in all honesty, I'm just trying to take your mind off stuff to put you asleep. These intros, yeah, they go on. I I try to introduce the concept of the show in a new way every single time. Uh, and actually, this is a new theory. I mean, it's an old theory. I just don't always put it forth. But I think one of the keys to the podcast is is somehow finding a like a familiarity and a variety at the same time, and so that's why I make the intros because some people they 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 fall asleep during the intro and that's a good thing. Now there's like yeah, a tiny sliver of the population, mostly goons, G O O N S, and hooligans. I can tell by the nasty things they write. Uh, they, they they don't like the intros they 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 or me but that's fine because they, they, you know they don't need to sleep you know they're going they're, they're they've got you know hooliganing who they're just returning from a hooliganing anyway and then they accidentally get encounter my packet so it's just it's not meant to be so it's not a big deal uh, but, you know, so the intros, it, it's it's trying to find a balance of something. They say, oh, okay, Scooter's going to try to make a, uh, it's not a misguided metaphor. And again, it's not a gratuitous, I guess sometimes there are gratuitous metaphors, just like those gratuitous pregnant pauses. 
gratuitous use of the word gratuitous. And uh, what was the word I used? Uh, periphery. Just on the periphery of sensibility. I mean, that's where this podcast lies. Uh, but so that way, you know, if you're new here, you'll kind of get you you'll new you'll know pretty soon. If I if if you know, you say, well, I'm not a hooligan, but you make me feel like one. I say, okay, maybe you could bail, and, and and no harm done. Thanks for your time. If you're unsure or you're suspicious, you're skeptical. Give it a few tries. I hope it works for you. What I was saying is like, uh, like I think like a lot of the parts for me that get stirred up are thinking parts or worrying parts or to do listers. Like would be, the it's the actual part of me, and it's a metaphorical or relatable part to the eighty other parts of me that get stirred up at bedtime. But they all get stirred up. And the whole thing is, like, I'm not really entertaining, super entertaining to regular people, to, to humans, uh, or to the central humanity unit inside you. You know, I, I, there's, I don't try, I try to avoid all philosophy and that kind of stuff. So I don't want to say the you, you, or whatever, because I said, geez, I have no idea. So let's just use a straightforward metaphor. This is central, is a CMH, or like central humanity unit, C. Central H Humanity Unit, yeah, your CHU, right in there in the, the solar chasm or whatever they, wherever they install it, uh, that part of you, uh, you know, that part of you will, will actually, ideally, it'll go into sleep mode because they say, okay, this, uh, this is a little bit of nonsense, but the vibrations, it'll, it'll just vibrate your encasing of your CMH or whatever the heck I called it, Central Humanity Unit. You know, so that all, all the other components within, you know, the, the, the little other, I call them brain bots. I don't know if they necessarily fit this this uh, schema of the, the human makeup, but uh, but I'm entertaining to all those other things. We'll, we'll say there's a little, you know, I don't know. Once you get a, it's tough to, I guess they should have finished with the central, once you get a central humanity unit or whatever, you say, well, what else do you need? He said, well, she said, yeah, I don't know why the, to be honest, I don't know why they installed all the other parts. Because, you know, if you take a few steps back, you start to see all these dials. And you get steam-powered stuff on one side. You get some vacuum tubes. You get some solid state. You get some stuff with different, like, uh, nocturnal gerbils running, running wheels. You get that strange guy that you're pretty sure is a part of your personality riding a bike or turning a light bulb on. And those, you know, all those different things are letting out alerts and signals. You say, well, geez, don't I just need this central humanity? What's all this other stuff? Well, that's the rest of you. I don't know. You know, I'm sure there's, you, you find better. Well, let's set aside all that right now. But what I try to do is I go in a room and your central humanity, let's just say that, like, I roll into that utility closet, the central humanity units up against the back wall. And I guess because it has eyes. Again, I don't know who the heck designed this thing. Say, well, why'd you put eyes on the central humanity unit? Because then it can see all the other buzzing and lighting stuff, and it can't go to sleep. And I say, well, I roll in, and you see me. And that's a familiar part of the show. You say, well, scoots. And usually even the central humanity unit will let us sound like that. <laughs> you know, I say, oh, scoots is on. You know, okay, so I could slowly start to roll down. 
but then all the other beeping and, and whirring and tinkling uh, contraptions, we'll call them, the lovely contraptions, yes, you all are. They recognize me. They say, oh, it's a scoots goofball. He's going to do some like goofing around for us. Usually he'll, uh, I mean, this is behind the scenes. This is my other podcast, this is straight uh, podcast just for these creatures, you know, not for essential humanities. You know, usually I do uh, poor magic tricks. And they seem, I could just do that for eight hours every night for that part of you. And I say, for my next trick, and they already know I've never completed a magic trick. But luckily, I, I've spent $4 million on packaged magic tricks. So then I say, you know, I'm going to make these balls disappear. But, and, and, you know, I, I work in some routines in there. And that's kind of what the podcast is. But see, there's a variety. Because they think if there has to be this familiarity... Uh, but also this variety, because otherwise, you know, your central humanity units still got those eyes on there. And if I just did the same four magic tricks, you know, all those parts of you would be like, all the other parts of vacuum tubes particularly are sensitive to this. And, of course, the gerbils and all them, they say, oh, no, 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 you did the one with the red balls, the foam balls before. And I said, well, no, this one's with rainbow handkerchiefs. Ooh. If I ever told you the tale of the double rainbow handkerchiefs. And that's pretty much how this podcast works, but it's more in, in a, just a narrative, you know, more like a Las Vegas, uh, well, you know, not as good as a Las Vegas, a good Las Vegas magic show. Usually it has like a overriding narrative, you know, to connect all the tricks. I think it's never had the uh, the scratch to see one. Uh, to see Chris Angel or David Copperfield, David Blaine. You know, but that'd be cool. But um, enough about me. Oh, boy, where did that come from, Scoots? Holy uh, forlorn magician problem. Okay, sorry about that, folks. It just sprung right out of me. Yet another issue, yet another nonsensical issue for me to deal with in my personal life. Let me just put tamp that back down there. Uh, sorry about that, but so... But, but, you know, I'll be trying to do a story for the rest of the show. We'll do a little housekeeping, and then we'll move on uh, to talking about Game of Thrones, and I'll run through a segment talking about the episode. Then I'll talk about some stuff I learned on the show. It'll be a little bit lighthearted. It'll be sanitized. It'll be fun. And then the episode will be capped off with a visit from Tom and Sir Pounce, and I'll talk to the old gods and the new... And the whole thing is just take your mind off of stuff, let you ease off, keep the attention of those parts of you that are more alert-based or, like, you're no, I guess those are different. It's like, why do you, if, again, I'm, again, not to criticize the master architect or whatever the heck it is, if you have the central humanities processing unit, you know, what the heck do you have 50 notification centers for? And then, okay, that central architect literally just tapped me on the shoulder. I wish I could. I wish I had a video podcast that said, uh, so you could do something with your life, Scoots. And I said, well, you really do know what you're doing. Holy, you were so brilliant, central architect. Sorry about that passive-aggressive thing five seconds ago. Yeah, that's where old Scoots comes in. I take them, you know, the, I don't want to call them lesser parts of you. They're the, what do we call them? The gizmos. There's gizmos in that room, too. Contraptions. Uh, 
we're, we're, I don't know, we're diddlies and things like that. Uh, what do you call them? Infernal devices. I think that was another term I've heard. So that's what I'll do for the next, and these Game of Thrones episodes are a little longer than normal, so I'll be here for a while. And the thing is, you don't have to fall asleep. I'll actually be putting in a full effort, just like I said with that magician-type metaphor. I'll be wholeheartedly doing it, you know, just like a good amateur magician does. And that's one of my things that I love is, like, even if they're terrible, if they're doing it with a joy in a full, like, where they're fully involved, there's something wonderful about that, you know. And especially me, because, you know, I'm slobbing my words or whatever, you know. And they say, well, yeah, it's a bit like, a, you know, watching somebody spill Kool-Aid on themselves while they're drinking. I said, well, that's what I do in my spare time. So uh, basically what I'm saying is I'm glad you're here. I appreciate you stopping by. And I really yearn and I really desire to help you fall asleep. So I hope I can. Uh, and, and, and thank you for testing this show out. Thank you for keep coming back. All right. Let's let's keep this uh, uh, bag of goofy tricks going. Uh, before we get to the housekeeping ahead, uh, you know we have ends and we have beginnings here on the show, and it's with a heavy heart that we say goodbye to Morley Safer. Uh, thanks, Morley. She's I'm already uh, really, and and with the end is also beginning. I think it's something Morley would be proud of. It's my friend Carol's podcast, new podcast called Work Stories Project. And it's kind of the untold stories about work life. Uh, Carol's curating the spectrum of human experience uh, of work in a really creative and interesting way. I've already heard feedback from some of the listeners of this podcast that have listened. And I'm really proud of all the hard work uh, uh, Carol and the people she's working with on the show, uh, her show, are putting into it. So go to uh, workstoriesproject.org or go to iTunes, ideally. Subscribe, check it out, leave Carol a review. Let her know on social media you checked it out and keep up the good work. Uh, and then on to the housekeeping, uh, Sleep With Me podcast on web, sleepwithmepodcast.com. Older episodes are there. You can comment on the website. You can uh, email me, feedback at Sleep With Me podcast on Twitter at Dearest Scooter or on Facebook. Um, I want to thank uh, Carl W., who edited this episode, Chris Posty Posterson, who does the theme music, Scotty and Jennifer on the artwork, on the honor. And Jonathan Mann, who provides the lullabies. And you can get a custom uh, lullaby or a song from Jonathan Mann, jonathanmann.net. Uh, we've got a Facebook group. I want to thank the moderators over there, Alexandra, Laura, Lie to Lie, uh, Jennifer B. and Julie C. And that's over at sleepingmepodcast.com slash nods. I want to thank all the people in the subreddit, Latitude, and uh, it's starting to get a little bit busier over there, and I'm trying to get, get over there and check in every once in a while. Uh, it's at sleepingmepodcast.com slash reddit. I want to thank all the patrons over at sleepingmepodcast.com slash patron over on Patreon that are uh, uh, slowly we're coming together there. We need 3,500 people at about 3 bucks a month, so if you value the show and you want to keep it at 12 episodes, uh, don't wait. Go to sleepingmepodcast.com slash patron. And I think that's it. Let's get on to the show. All right, everybody. We're talking season four, episode six, Book of the Stranger tonight. And tonight, you know, I know that everybody can't see, no one, not everybody, no one could see how I'm recording it. But tonight I have an extra layer of uh, 
Uh, so now I've got three. I got uh, my notes in front of me. I have some dialogue from the show in front of me, and then I have on an old uh, iPhone 4S uh, Game of Thrones playing before, because uh, I used to have to switch back on the iPad. And he said, well, geez, let's play the episode right through. Like, sometimes I would do that, but then I'd have to... Anyway, it's an experiment, but we're talking uh, season four. I'll probably be more distracted, maybe, but who cares? Uh, we're talking season four. It'll give me another thing to reference, I guess. A Book of the Stranger. And, uh, oh, yeah, I'm distracted. I'm looking at the uh, um, the hilt of the Jon Snow's uh, sword. And Ned's picking it up here. I guess I could do that, but that would be just straight narration, which is kind of dull. Uh, so I'm going to try to dis- distract, distract myself with the notes I took. Oh, so it opens with swords. It's John's, but Ned uh, looks at it and it's sheathed. And he's thinking, John's packing. And Ned seems very torn, and I capitalized T-O-R and N. Actually, it looks like I only capitalized T-R and N with an exclamation point. Uh, and then Ned has like a serious and brave look. John's saying, hey, I'm, I'm out. Uh, he's like, well, where are you going to go? You know, we've been together. How can you leave us? You know, that's why he's torn. He's like, what are you doing, man? And uh, John says, yeah, you, Ed says, uh, you swore your life. Ned, I think I, I thought his name was Ned, but it turns out it's Ed. I don't know if I came clean on that last week. I've been calling him. And actually, for, for most of the podcasts, I've had his name wrong. Then someone had the kindness to email me. Because I think for a while I was calling him, hey, who's that other guy? But then he was, now he's the only, he's the only guy, you know. I think his name's like Delirious Del- 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 or something, Ned with a D word. Anyway, he says, you got a vow. John says, yeah, I had a vow, but that was my old, that was old John Snow. This is new John Snow. And these guys, they went against me. Well, you want me to stay here? And then we have one horn blows, which I always forget tonight. And one horn means somebody's there, I think. And then let's read my notes. Then I'm going to actually watch the scene. This is one of the scenes I wanted to watch. Uh, Brianne, some word. Oh, Brianne and Sansa. Oh, Sansa's on the left. The gate's open. They say open the gates, and then the gate's open, and Brianne's there. Sansa's on the left. Podrick's on the right. There's mountains behind them. Uh, according to my notes, they kind of trudge in on their horses. And Brianne looks... And I definitely can't read it because I overwrote. Uh, it's in parentheses. Looks like S-C-O-N. Uh, looks scared, maybe? Scorn? Maybe she has scorn on her face. Yeah, her face definitely has something. Then her and Tormund share this look. I'm playing it now. They go in. Everybody's watching them come in. The camera's going back and forth, and Tormund's just staring and looking at him. He's totally, his jaw's on the floor as they come in. He looks flabbergasted. Uh, then her and Tormund share look number one. That's what I put. This is what everybody's talking about this week anyway, so I don't want to over-talk it. But I put he looks flabbergasted, which he did. Uh, Sansa looks around. Uh, she turns, John's standing up, uh, 
He takes his hand off the rail. I really liked it. Like, almost like the rail was too cold. He takes his hand off the rail. Another nice, nice touch. Uh, look at my notes, actually, are better at describing stuff than watching it. Because uh, that, that was a good thing I noticed the other time. Then he walks down, and he get, he's got this look. She's got this look. This really good non-spoken acting by both of them. I can see why he's such a, Kit Harrington's such a, a lead, you know, lead actor. Uh, after this, just the, uh, the looks. And then actually Brienne was giving side eyes during that scene. They hug in the snow. And believe it or not, I'm giving notes slower than the episode. The episode's getting way ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, but who cares? It's not my job. Let it run, I say. You know, uh, but they have a hug in the snow. Then they're in the, like a, you know, they're in a private dining room. And they're having soup and ale in front of the fire. And, oh, they're, they're making amends, uh, her and John. Uh, forgive me. And they're just talking about, you know, how they treated each other. Uh, she was kind of awful. He was like, well, I was always sulking in the corner. And they said, well, there's nothing to forgive. Uh, and this is something, and they say, no, forgive me. And he said, all right, I forgive you. And they laugh. Uh, then they share a, a drink of uh, bad beer. And then they say, well, we're in this together, but uh, how are we going to, uh, uh, Sansa wants to go home. And then John's like, I don't know about that. And Sansa's already like, well, how many wildlings do you got? And I said, well, it's not in it. And she goes, they, they owe you, John. She goes, Winterfell's our home. It belongs to our family. We got to go after it. And he goes, I'm tired of saying this. I'm tired of this. And he goes, all I've done is fight since I left home, you know. And I've lost a lot, and I've seen a lot, and even people I've admired. And he goes, you know, it's just a lot. It's a lot. And she goes, well, this is what we have to do. You know, it's a family. Now she's starting to sound like a Lannister. You know, this is a family. I mean, I don't think she says family, but uh, she's kind of talking about her own their security. And she says, you know what? I'll do it myself if I have to. Let's see what else I have. Uh, forgive me. You go, we go. Uh, home. Uh, Sansa's the, are with Edge works the room. Oh, there's a lot of good working of the room here. Like Sansa stands up. You can really learn a lot about I mean, I don't know. Tired of fighting. I've fought and I've lost. Uh. Uh, then there's a parenthesis here. I don't know why, but it says WTF onion uh, night lesson. Oh, I fought and I've lost. Oh, that's why I was irritated because he I said, didn't you take that life lesson from the onion night? Keep fighting. Keep like making mistakes and recovering from your mistakes. Onion night's middle name's resilience. He's so, he's so, what are these called? We're not in the aughts anymore. So what is this called? The... Uh, Diaz's or something, that, uh, uh, but he's so into you know resiliency is so. I mean, I guess it was hot a couple of years ago. It's making a comeback though. Get it? That's that was a minor resiliency joke. 
Okay, I'll just wait and see if anybody gets re- resiliency. It's making a comeback. Okay. Onion Knight would get it because the Onion Knight's big on that. Uh, but then there's a scene with the Onion Knight. Red Woman's looking. And then he kind of he kind of does this a little... After I talked him up, Red Woman's kind of looking thoughtfully out. And she looks kind of sad and thoughtful. And Davos goes up to her and he's he's probing her. He goes, uh, where, where are you going to go? And she goes, well, wherever Jon Snow goes, I'm doing as he commands. He's the pr- promised one. And then Onion Knight gets all passive-aggressive. He goes, well, I thought that was Stannis. And she just walks off, which I thought was really cool. And then we have this dinner scene where Davos, like, uh, it, it's a big scene. we got Davos... Oh, no, no, this is outside. No, I'm sorry. I'm miss, missing my notes. He follows the red woman downstairs. And now he wants to know what happened uh, to, to, to Stannis. Uh, I guess it makes sense, though, because he's been dealing with Jon Snow and all those bonehead uh, Night's Watch guys. But he's like, what happened? And then Brienne kind of just butts right in. And she drops this, quoting my notes, a blood magic bomb. And then I put forget her, forget her. I don't, let me see, forget her, forgive. Oh, forget her, forgive. Uh, let me look here. Oh, because she, she says, oh, the devil says, I've never met. And she goes, well, yeah, I, I kind of met you because I was with Renly uh, when all that stuff went down. Because uh, she goes, you know, that uh, I put in, you know, no kids listen. Turn down the volume for a count to 50. Uh, or if you're, free, you know, uh, she stuns the fuck out of them, which she does. I put out of, uh, stuns the fuck out of O-T-T-A them. Because uh, she does, she says, I don't forget and I don't forgive, you know, with this blood magic action. And she goes, yeah, so I thought about that when I took Stannis out, by the way. So good luck with that. And then we have Old Sickly, the worst of the worst, uh, this kid. Almost makes Joff likable, this this kid. And then the Mockingbird Express shows up, which uh, I guess I was pleased at the time, but it's true. But then there's this unbelievable... So there's this, I put three stars, and then more swearing, I guess. Turn down the volume again, please, uh, if you don't like swearing. Yeah, because it was so fucking good. His fucking, so the door opens on the uh, stagecoach. you got to rewatch the scene. It's at 1230. Uh, his fucking legs are crossed. But it's just so sweet. You just see his knees. This is so brilliant. Oh, my gosh. And you just see his knees, like he's kicked, he's kicked back in his stagecoach. Or well, it's just, oh my goodness, he's just kicked in there with his legs crossed. And I put, uh, there's more swearing still to come. Uh, fucking legs crossed, sly kickback, motherfucker, because that's what it is. He's just kicking back. Oh man, I mean, where? Oh my goodness, this is just the quality of the show. And he rolls in, Peter Baelish, he says, the defender of the veil to the sickly kid, whatever his name is. And then he gives him this falcon, a gyroscopic falcon or something, rarest and greatest. And there's hugs and, uh, oh, I put G-falcon on my notes. 
They have a showdown with Lord Royce, who's got a little bit too much equipment on. Lord Royce has got like a breastplate and a cloak on. And he stands next to Littlefinger as Robin Aaron plays with the bird and Littlefinger works his magic. Because uh, uh, Lord Royce is like, uh, oh, I thought you were going to do something. And he goes, well, I don't do things directly, bro. I do what's best. And Lord Royce says, do you take me for a fool? And he goes, you're, leak you're a leaker, man. I know you're leaking out the info. And then Royce says, are you slandering me? And I tell you one pro tip, pro-am tip here. Anybody uses the word slander, uh, like in a cas in casual conversation, don't, don't trust them ever again. Simple thing. I mean, if they're using it in context, uh, uh, but if they use, say, slander in themselves, uh, just walk away. Even if, if it, even if you, I mean, I hate to break up families, but just do it. Trust me on this one. I mean, make sure to put it in context. You know, if they're at work or they're journalists and they're talking about, but but if they use casual conversation, they drop slander within themselves. I mean, I'm sure there's like a cool way to say, you know, like uh, slander. Like if they're using it in uh, less than casual conversation, what's that called? Um. Anyway, maybe don't listen to me. Actually, there you go. Pro am tip: don't listen to scoots. But uh. Probably avoid people that use slander too. Uh, but yeah, he, he says, uh, "Hey, sickly kid, what do we think we should do with this guy, Robin Aaron?" And he says, "Let's get rid of him." And then Peter Peter Baelish says, "Well, you know, I, I I think if we could trust him totally, he might be a capable commander in the wars to come." So we get this wars to come uh, callback uh, again. And then Baelish is doing some bad acting, which I liked. Uh, and then at the end, he does this, like, smooth turn. And he goes, our Lord has spoken, because he says, let's send out the soldiers, you know. Because uh, he says, let's go get, you know, let's take our, we got to go save Sansa, your cousin. And that's when he's kind of doing this bad acting to get Robin Air, and he's pulling the strings, but... He gets Robin Aaron to make a move, but he just does this cool, smooth turn. And I don't know, the, the, again, I'm behind the episode. But, you know, somewhere around 15 minutes that happens. Um, let's see what else our Lord has spoken. Time has come to join the fray. I really like that line. Uh, then we see a harpy boat, and then we have Tyrion driving some privilege. Uh, uh, on uh, Grey Worm and Masande. Uh not his finest moment, you know, because uh, uh, Grey Worm and Masande are like, why would you work with slavers, you know, why are you going to negotiate with them in d diplomacy? And Tyrion's kind of this whole theme of, like, which is worse, uh, war or slavery, you know? And Masande says, uh, how, how, how long, because uh, Tyrion says, well, I can identify... And she says, well, how long were you a slave? He goes, uh, long enough to know. And she says, not long enough to understand. So such, uh, well, I don't I mean, just, just such well-handled 
discourse. Let's just say that let's just leave it at that. Beautifully, beautifully handled discourse. I think that you could take more meaning from. Uh, and after she says that, uh, Varys gives like Varys gives a nice give look, a uh, funny little look. Uh, like, well, she's right. It was something to, to Tyrion. And we also get like a view a few times here in Marine of the budget that must have even gone up again. So there's these outside sets, and I don't know if they're digital or painted or a combination of uh, real location, but just beautiful uh, locations with either pure location or set design on some level. Just gorgeous, gorgeous. And then we have the slavers and Tyrion. He's kind of talking about reversal of fortune. He's got like this line, friends, friends, friends. Because uh, they're trying to say, you know, the, the, these guys, you know, it's just like a back and forth kind of carryover from the scene. Should we negotiate? Should we should we give to them? And if you watch the extras at the end, they kind of waste some Benioff talk about it, kind of the influences. Uh, he also impressed him when he says, you know, Jesus, Westeros doesn't have any slaves, and I'm richer than all of you put together. Uh, so he said, you know, he says, Jesus, then they make a negotiation. He says, let us sail on the tide of freedom instead of being drowned by it. And then he kind of, and I think there's an extra layer here. Nothing is ever as it seems. We say, Jesus, you really sold out your people, your main peeps, Masande and Grey Worm. Uh, let's see, those get rid of the slavers kind of seem surprised and impressed. Uh, seven years of more of slavery. Grey Worm and Masande were not pleased, shocked, torn. Uh, then Tyrion goes into the temple to deal with the people who are like, dude, what the heck is going on? And they have to eat crow for peace, uh. And Sunday and Grey Worm kind of have to, oh, they have to eat crow. So they have to say, oh, well, you know, this is a good idea, I guess. But when they get outside and they're alone, uh, Grey Worm's pissed. He's like, dude, these you can't trust these guys and you're selling out, like, ethics and morals, I think. And I guess uh, Tyrion would quote Lincoln, okay, geez, I don't know what to do here. I'm trying to... Uh, Make 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 the best decision I can. Uh, which maybe he says that again. We get more another shot of these sets and location shots, which are gorgeous. Uh, and more talk about trust and slavery and war and contempt and being used. It, what it really comes down to is who's using who, or whom. And you know that that is kind of wrong. You know. Uh, then we're back in these badlands, and we have Dario who's kind of talking crass about the Khaleesi. It's kind of humorous, but you should see it for yourself and decide what you think. Uh, but this is, you know, some some hum- humorous relief because uh, they're talking about uh, Dario's kind of talking to Tyrion, who's having he's out of breath. He can barely climb the the the, the hills they're climbing, and he's using that to say, "Hey, you couldn't." Uh, uh, be with the Khaleesi anyway. He's kind of so humble. It's a humble brag for sure. And then he says, well, it just must make you angry. The queen chose me. And it, uh, uh, Jorah says, uh, it makes me sad. You're going to disappoint her anyway. And then she'll move on. 
Or maybe he said, and I said, well, we'll disappoint you, or we'll all disappoint her before long. And then Jorah's like, well, I've had enough of your mouth. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. And Sir Jorah says, you didn't get much discipline as a child, did you? And he's like, nope. Uh, then they have to get rid of their weapons because you're not allowed weapons. Of course, Dario doesn't listen to that, but Dario also sees uh, Jorah's secret that he's sick with the stone disease. But they also do a little bit of a, a tiny piece of exposition, I guess. This is uh, to reassure us. He's like, well, it's only in contact, skin-to-skin contact, that it's communicable. So it's like, oh, okay, that's a good piece of information to remind us of, especially me, because I had forgotten that. Uh, I still can't forgive Jorah, because it's like, well, what if the Khaleesi tripped and bumped into you, you know? So, I mean, I guess I'd have to rewatch all the tape to see if he was standing, like, at a six-feet distance from her. But again, she could do a double trip, like trips, then stumbles, and then even then ten, I mean, because I do that all the time, those kind of trips. So even then, ten feet's not enough, you know. Uh, but this night, and they sneak into the uh, the giant, uh, uh, Dos, what is it, Doshkaleen? No, that's the uh, Ray. I don't know. But they sneak in there, and there's wild parties going on, and he, what's his name says, eh, should have been born a Dothraki. Uh, then they get busted. Then we have the Khaleesi with the Doshkaleen. Uh, one other piece of exposition I missed is that they say there's 100,000 uh, uh, cow people down there, or Dothraki people, so that is important to know, too. Uh, so then we have, let's see. Okay, so we have a Khaleesi with the uh, Dodge Colleen, and uh, the main lady's like talking, oh, these, they, some of these are not that smart. And they don't realize that, I, you know, I'm culturally. And then she introduces Khaleesi to one of her young one of her young protégés. And Khaleesi shows her some interest and compassion. Uh, like, well, what was your story, huh? And it's a story that the Khaleesi can relate to. So it, it, it kind of pulls in her heartstrings. And then the Dashkelling kind of talks about how they play a second fiddle to the patriarchy. And you'll have to see what the patriarchs decide to do with you, uh, you know, because you, you don't have a choice. And Khaleesi says, uh, I think they had one other line. Oh, she says, well, geez, you can't run. And Khaleesi says, I'll never run. Uh, you know, I don't, that's not what I do. And then she says, I got to go make water. Oh, the other line was uh, the older woman said, well, our lives have meaning. And Khaleesi said, well, that's most, but she was saying, like, even within the patriarchy. And I guess that Khaleesi was kind of seeing this as a gray area, too. She's like, well, that's most and most more than a lot of people have, but it's still not good enough for our Khaleesi. It is known. She went, you know, she's going for empowerment. Uh, so then she rolls out with her new friend and says, man, those old women stink and, you know, I need fresh air because they're getting on my nerves. And then she kind of creates some rapport, a real rapport. I always hate how that word is, but she really creates a connection with this other young woman. 
so that then they run into Jorah and whatever that Dario, and they say, she says, oh, no, this girl's my friend. I can trust her, this young woman. And the woman says, again, Khaleesi says, can I? And she says, yeah, you can. Then we see Marjorie, the next scene. Oh, wait, there's more dialogue. I put Khaleesi lays on the charm. I don't know. I don't think the dialogue was that. It was Joran uh, uh, Dario's that important. Uh, but then we have Marjorie in her cell. She's taken out, and she goes to see the sparrow. And when she first comes into the room, he's in his little, the place he likes to hang, the grotto, Sparrow's Grotto. And when she first goes in, like, the light is too bright, so she shields her eyes, and her shoulders are stooped, and her eyes are on the floor. And I kind of was wondering, on the second rewatch, like, is like, is she acting almost? Uh, like, it's so good how uh, I kind of... Thing. And then we have this uh, discussion with the uh, uh, sparrow. He says, hey, if I let you out, where would you go? And she goes, to see my brother or my husband or my family. And he goes, well, that's sin, you know, money and power. And he goes, she gives him a and he says, well, I'm not maligning you. He goes, I did that too, to the exclusion of all else. And he tells this parable about being a cobbler. And his father was a simple man, simple shoes, but then the sparrow was an artisanal craftsman of shoes, and he made expensive shoes. A dozen of hours on a single pair. Quality takes time. Uh, Marjorie says, he goes, yeah, I get you, bet you've worn a year of someone's time on your back. And he goes, yeah, but the rich people, they paid well for my shoes, so I could get, you know, middle-class existence. And he goes, I would indulge, and I felt myself ascending to something better. And Price is at his best. This is a really good scene with Jonathan Price. Uh, in Natalie Dormer is just, uh, I don't know, wow. Uh, especially when you get to watch it twice because you get to see the full arc of this uh, this, this episode, and it's like... Uh, they say goodbye, Cersei. Hello, Marjorie. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe I don't know. She might be she 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 might be too healthy for me. Uh, but she 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 she. It's just a the I don't know. Uh, but he goes on with this scene. Yeah, you know, I used to. So I ascended to. I find myself trying to ascend to something better, and then Marjorie kind of tur turns it on her. She goes, and one day you walked uh, through a graveyard realizing it was all for nothing and set out on the path of righteousness. Uh, Book of the Stranger, verse 25. And Spirit says, oh, you know the seven-pointed star? She goes, yeah, that crazy woman reads it to me nonstop. And he goes, oh, yes, yes. Uh, oh, she goes, it reads it to me nonstop. And she goes, at me. And he goes, oh, yeah, she does enjoy reading at people. He goes, you're close. It wasn't a graveyard. It was a feast. You know, we were up to no good. And I was on a serious bender. And he goes, I woke up before dawn, to you know, totally uh, rock bottom. I mean, I guess I can relate in some sense. Because uh, he actually says he even had a man. Wow, I didn't realize how deep this went. But he goes, yeah, the next morning, all the smells and everything... Uh, I realized it was the morning after I saw with perfect clarity. 
that uh, all, all the wine, women, and gold, and my ceaseless struggle to maintain my position was all part of a story, a story I was telling myself about who I was, a collection of lies that would disappear in the light. Uh, the people I was trying to climb away from, my people, the poor, were closer to the truth uh, than I was. So the merchant said, what did you do? And now she's kind of engaged. She goes, well, I went out and tried to find them. I didn't even put on my shoes. I just uh, headed out. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, shoulder soup, parable. Marjorie's kind of on the ground with, while he's telling the story. Her arms are crossed. Uh, to me, when he says to me, uh, she rolls her eyes up. Uh, oh, this is when she said, oh, she read the seven-point star to me at me. She rolls her eyes up to the left. I really liked that. Uh, the acting was amazing. Uh, when he says, uh, oh, there's this, so when he starts the end of his parable about his moment of clarity, uh, he's framed and the camera really slow pulls in. He's looking off to the right, like somewhere, uh, like he's looking way into the past, which he is. So, so such a good scene. Uh, and then Marjorie goes to Loris. He says, hey, let's go see your brother. But Mar and again, I guess the brilliance of that scene. And the nice thing about this next scene is it reminds us is that Jesus is, uh, I don't know, like, uh, I mean, being misdirected, but I don't know how the magic works, right? So it's like Weiss, Benioff, and Martin and the entire cast and crew of Game of Thrones here have us in their thrall, or at least me. So I say, well, there's this, this sparrow. Some of the, some of his words are saying things I can understand uh, and even relate to, but his actions, aren't his actions kind of atrocious? And then where's Marjorie on all this? And then so she goes to her brother, Loris, and he kind of seems like his spirit's broken. And she says, you need to stay strong. And he's like, I can't. Uh, I never was strong. And she goes, you're strong, man. You're the future of our family. He goes, I don't care. And she goes, well, you know, come on. We got to act like we're talking about something else. Don't tell them you're broken. And he goes, I just want to get out. And she goes, this is a game. That's why they're having me talk to you to kind of wear you down. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm here. She goes, I know this guy, you know, she's saying that she thinks she knows how the magic trick works, but it's like within the magic trick, that's how great it is. Like the rabbit or the kid, whatever. I'm like, what? And she's like, we can't give in, just make it stop. We can't let them win. And Loris is kind of, he's broken though. Uh, but Marjorie's, you know, holding him and loving him. And it also reminded me, he says, help me. Uh, and it reminded me of Tom and Cersei. And also I put Marjorie's just so hard. She's such a badass. Uh, I love her. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, let's not get into my feelings about Marjorie, but uh, she's a fictional character. i got to remind myself that. Uh, but it, I liked how it echoed the moment with Tom and Cersei from either episode two or three, now I can't remember, uh, to which we have, like, uh, Circe's, Circe's in the hall in this nice black gown, black and gold. 
blubbering maesters talking to Tom and about a bunch of garbage about how to uh, uh, kind of give in to the High Sparrow, not to challenge him. Okay, so, so, so sorry. So the Tommen's talking to Blubbering Meister. And he's like, hey, just back down. We won't do it. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to upset this guy. And Cersei rolls in, and Tommen tries to sort of, he's standing by the window. Uh, oh, Cersei closes the door after she kicks him out like that. And uh, Tommen looks at the window, and he's talking to Cersei. He's trying to be assertive, but he's kind of holding his hands uncomfortably. And he says, let's not antagonize this guy. Uh, he's got Mar- Marjorie. I don't want to risk her. This guy's dangerous. And Cersei's like, Marjorie? What about-? I mean, she didn't say that, but she says, well, you know what they did to the king's mother? And he goes, well, it's a, you know, that's the past, Mom. I'm more worried about Marjorie, you know, my wife, the one I, you know, get to kiss and stuff. I uh, like you, but uh, you're also evil and manipulative. As much as I love you, but... Uh, and he goes, let me ask you something. Do you like Marjorie? And she goes, well, that's not important at all. She's the queen. I mean, that must have taken everything she had just to say that. And she goes, queens must respect, command respect, kings even more so. And I guess you can savor this if you watch it two or three times. This is not just for their sake, for everyone's. Uh, the high spirit doesn't have respect. Uh, no respect for anything in this world. No use for things in this world. He just wants to take him, uh, things out and replace them with fantasies. With beggars in the street, with nothing. And he goes, well, Mother, I got a secret to have with the High Sparrow. And she goes, you met with the Sparrow? He goes, well, I promised I wouldn't tell anyone. And she goes, I am your mother. You can always trust me. And then the scene cuts, which is wild, uh... Because it's like what was said. And then uh, the small council meeting's going on with Blubbering Meister talking to uh, uh, Lady Tyrell, Oleana, and uh, Sir Kevin. And it's just Cersei and uh, Jamie. And like, oh, this meeting's over. And at first, at first they're greeted with the Venom. Well, let me see if, let me check my these notes. Oh, Thomas' mouth was open as she said, you can trust me. Okay, Cersei and Jamie, because they, they lay in the land, and there's a nice light strings of uh, reins of Casimir. Because first they insult them, and then Jamie's like, you know, Cersei's the mother of the king. You know, because uh, Oleana's like, you, you have no authority here. Uh, the king, you know, king trusts us, not you two boneheads. And she goes, you know, the king's talking to the High Sparrow, and, uh, you know, the High Sparrow wants us to fight. Jamie and Cersei, it really looks like they play these two, so I'm curious to see what happens. And they say, well, now the future of the Seven Kingdoms is in his dirty peasant hands. You know, they're going to have a trial, they're going to make Marjorie atone, walk through the city. Olana's like, no, that's not going to happen. Cersei's like, oh, of course, uh. I agree with you totally. Why don't, why don't you call your army the second largest in Westeros and have them deal with uh, the High Sparrow? Then we're not breaking Tommen's trust because he said don't do anything. That's what Kevin says. We're not supposed to do anything according to King. 
And he says, well, the Tyrell armies are going to do stuff, not you. So you just stand down. And Sir Kevin's like, was, didn't this happen in season one? Cersei, didn't you do so? Was that season two? And she goes, what about your son? Don't you care about your son who's in this throes of this religious thing? And then everyone says, oh, boy, I guess we're on board here. Uh, strange bedfellows. Uh, but then they say, well, we're all rich. Who cares? You know, because they say, well, it's war. You know, isn't the, the, the other theme going over there? Not war. What's it good for? And they're saying, well, not for poor people. Absolutely not for war. Good gosh, y'all. What is it good for? Not bad for the rich. Uh, what's it good for? For poor people, absolutely not good. Or something like that it goes. Uh, and there's a scene rolls on the, uh, who was playing who? It was too easy, it seemed like, but the strings kept getting louder and louder, which was nice. Uh, then we have Reek and a ship looking longly at the Iron Islands, then looking afraid, then he looks down. Then his sister's sitting in a chair by a fire. She's kind of in a bad mood. Uh, she's like, well, I, would you let you go? He goes, I escaped. She goes, I can't hear you. He goes, I escaped. Uh, you know, and she's really mad. He's like, well, I was broken. And she goes, well, I don't care. She goes, I want to be in charge here. And now you're coming back in here. He goes, well, I don't want to be in charge. He goes, I want you to be in charge. And he said, wait a second, don't you guys know about that scene? He said, maybe they don't. Seen a chair, escaped Ramsey. Oh, then we have Ramsey and uh, Rickon's caretaker, whose name escapes me at the moment. And then we have this uh, Castle Black, and a message comes in, and this is the dinner scene that everybody's talking about here. We have dinner, we have Brienne looking around, we have Tormund uh, consuming pig's feet with glee in silence uh, while staring at uh, Brienne. And you got uh, Ned kind of looking on in confusion. And then someone rolls in, they're like, uh, they're like, sorry about this food. And uh, Sansa's like, you know, I know how to be polite. That's uh, fine. And uh, I'm just going to rewatch it here. This will be an experiment. Occasionally we could do this. So they uh, have the messenger coming in with a white flag into Castle Black. Nice little shot through the gates. Gates are closing. Uh, fork with a uh, pig's foot. Or maybe it looks like a spare rib, actually. Uh, Sansa eating, John eating, he, John's kind of looking, Rand's looking around now, uh, looking at her food, not eating, looking over at Tormund, who's uh, can, making making uh, food love to his meat, really. And Brienne looks down after a while. She's still in chain mail. Tormund looks pretty pleased. Ned looks confused, raises his eyebrows. I've seen that gif a few times, or chif. And that's when then the letter comes in. And they read the letter. It's from Ramsay. It says, hey, I'm going to come, you know, you come here, I'll come there. But I'm up to no good. I'm Ramsay. You know, I got Rick in. Sansa's like, he must have taken his dad out. Now he's in charge. Uh, he's making threats. And he has Rickon, so we have to do. And then they're like, well, how many men does he have? They say about 5,000, I think. 
And then uh, John's like, well, Torment, how many we, we got? And he says, like, 2,000, barely. And then Saints is like, John, you're the warden of the last son of the warden of the north. Uh, people are loyal. It's really, really loyal. Uh, oh, boy. You know, you just have to ask for help. Uh, it was this guy's you know, taking our home and our brother. Uh, we have to go back to Winterfell and save them both. And then she reaches out for his hand and he nods. And then we have this scene with the uh, calls and they're talking about, you know, geez, what's going on here? And then they say, bring in the Khaleesi. And they say, hey, we're just trying to figure out, you know, they say, leave us. And they say, well, who cares what she wants? You know, who is this? And they're kind of talking about her and kind of making fun of her. And this is one of the great scenes. They say, well, maybe we'll keep her with the Dash Colleen. But then they say, the Masters of Ukraine, Ukraine are offering 10,000 horses for her. And they go, isn't she worth, let's give her 10,000 horses. And he goes, well, I won't let them like the wise masters of Yunkai. We'll take the horses. Khaleesi says, don't you care what I think? And they're like, no, what are you kidding us? And she goes, no, I don't care. And they say, well, we don't care. They go, this is, you don't have any voice. This is a patriarchy. And he goes, they go, we decide. And then Khaleesi says, you know, I've been here before. I know where I am. Uh, this is where the Dash Colleen, uh, you know, they I had this dream or something, the sorceress. And they're like, yeah, you're a sucker for sorcery. It's all your fault. All the bad luck uh, that befell Khal Drogo. And she goes, well, Drogo made me a promise that the... Uh, uh, Dothraki people would help me uh, reclaim the throne. Uh, take out the Iron Stones. She's working the room. She's walking around. Then she walks up on these pedestals or uh, on, on stage. And she goes, what are these great calls discussing? What little villages you'll raid? How many girls you're going to take as tribute? She goes, you're small men. None of you are fit to lead the Dothraki. But I am. And then she says, so I will. And she has this look on her face. Uh, and these guys aren't taking her seriously. But she's got this cool, confident, defiant look on her face. Almost amused at, uh, that she knows she's the one in the power. And they're powerless. Uh, let me see. Walks around. Takes the stage, you're small men. I am so I will. She stares, she smiles as they talk and get mad. And they say, oh, geez, whatever. And they say, do, do you think we're going to serve us? And she goes, they, they say, do you think you're really going to serve us? And she goes, you're not going to go serve anybody. You're out, uh. And then she says, you're out, boys. And she says, I'm the phoenix. Uh, uh, it is known that Khaleesi is a phoenix. And she's just so cool in that scene. And then the doors fall off the building. The Khaleesi emerges like a naked phoenix I put there. And everyone falls to their knees. There's like this drumming, chanting music. 
and even Sora, Jora, Sora, even Jora the Andal, and uh, what's his name? I can't. I guess because I'm jealous of him too. Whatever his name is, uh, Dario Naharis. They even work their way up, but then they even fall to their knees. And she stares down from a B word. I don't know what that word is, but she has this like proud, like uh, almost like a, like a, the head of the pride look, uh, like a, more than a lioness, even greater than a lioness, so much more. But just this proud look, uh, stares down. I don't know what that word is. Uh, but everyone is like, okay, this it is known now. I mean, I guess the building's behind her. Maybe that's what I put. But it is a great scene, great music, and a great episode. Uh, so we'll see what happens next week. Huh? But let's uh, we'll look up some stuff. All right, everybody, we're talking about the book of The Stranger here. And what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about The Stranger on a bunch of different levels and strange uh, a little bit. I mean, I guess this will be kind of a monoculture episode. It'll all be about strange strangers and some strange, strange, you know what I mean. Because uh, sometimes, you know, when the Game of Thrones gives, sometimes it gives in abundance. And tonight was no... So this is where it took me. So we're going to open up with a little bit, and then we'll talk about, you know, just roll with it. How about that? We're going to start with, like, some prose from a song. Uh, well, we all have a face that we hide away forever, and we take them out and show ourselves when everyone is gone. Some are satin, some are steel, some are silk, some are leather. They're the faces of a stranger but we love to try them on. Well, we all fall in love, but we disregard the danger. Though we share so many secrets, there's some we never tell. Why were you surprised that you never saw the stranger? Did you ever let your lover see the stranger in yourself? Uh, don't be afraid to try again. Everyone goes south now and then. You've done it. Why can't someone else? You should know by now. You've been there yourself. Once I used to believe I was such a great romancer. Then I came home to a woman that I could not recognize. When I pressed her for a reason, she refused to even answer. It was then I felt the stranger kick me right between the eyes. Well, we all fall in love, but we disregard the danger. Though we share so many secrets, there are some we never tell. Why were you so surprised that you never saw the stranger? Did you ever let the, your lover see the stranger in yourself? Don't be afraid to try again. Everyone goes south now and then. You've done it. Why can't someone else? You should know by now. You've been there yourself. You may never understand how the stranger is inspired, but he isn't always evil. And he is not always wrong. Though you drown in good intentions, you will never quench the fire. You'll give in to your desire when the stranger comes along. And that was written by Billy Joel from the song The Stranger. 
Uh, but let's bounce over the Game of Thrones wiki to find out about the stranger. Uh, Caitlin Stark is quoted at the top of the wiki. Uh, finally, there is the stranger, rarely prayed to, who represents passing. The stranger's aspect of the seven represents death in the unknown, rarely prayed to. Unlike the other aspects which are re represented in human figures in artwork, the stranger represents the unknown, so it can be portrayed in a wide variety of forms, you know, sometimes in a wide variety of archetypal uh, things, uh, I'll say. And that's it, I guess, uh, from the wiki. There's more about the books, and it comes up in this episode, as we talked about. And I just think it's like a great example of uh, such a term. I mean, that uh, George R. Martin picked the term the stranger is just brilliant because uh, it has such uh, such meaning for us in this modern day. Uh, but we really can't have a, a conversation about the stranger without talking about the novel by Camus. Uh, which my dyslexia, it makes me really hard to pronounce Until somebody told me how to pronounce it, I did not know how to pronounce it. Uh, Albert Camus, 1942. And this book just had a great recent impact on me in the last five years. But uh, just reading from Wikipedia, The Stranger of the Outsider in French, La Tranger. Uh, its theme and outlook are often cited as examples of uh, Camus' philosophy of absurd and existentialism, though it says Camus rejected, rejected the latter label. Uh, the uh, protagonist is Mersault, I think is how you pronounce it, and uh, they say is an indifferent French-Algerian uh, well, actually, we don't need to cover the plot too much. In January 1955, Camus wrote, I summarized The Stranger a long time ago with a remark I admit was highly paradoxical. In our society, any man who does not weep at his mother's funeral runs the risk of being sentenced to uh, trouble. I only meant that the hero of my book is content condemned because he does not play the game. And there's a big write-up on... Uh, you know, the plot and stuff, reception, the Stranger's first edition consisted of 4,400 copies, and couldn't, so it couldn't become a bestseller. But it was well-received due to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, article on the EVA publication. Vigiani wrote of the book, Carl Vigiani wrote of the book, and the surface, La Tranger, it was the appearance of being an extremely simple, though carefully planned and written book. In reality, it is a dense and rich creation full of undiscovered meanings and formal qualities. It would take a book at least the length of the novel to make a complete analysis of the meaning and form of correspondences in the book. So there's a lot about it. Um, yeah, there's so much stuff, and it's been appeared in so many different things. I think I've kind of talked about uh, how it came up for me, but uh, maybe it, there's a New Yorker article. I just want to cite a couple of things from that. Maybe I'll read a little bit from the book and maybe talk about it. But there's this New Yorker article from by Ryan Bloom from uh, May 11, 2012, uh, Lost in Translation, what the first line of The Stranger should be. It's interesting because they talk about how the opening sentence 
uh, in the original translation was uh, was uh, mother died today. That was a Gilbert translation from forty six, and then there was two translations in eighty two who kept that uh, mother died today. And then in 88, there was a poet, Matthew Ward, who reverted mother to the original text, which was Maman, which uh, is it's just an interesting article talking about, Jesus. is that too formal mother died today? Does that influence how we read the book? Is Maman uh, too French or too, is it inaccessible or is it just the right word? And then he kind of talks about, geez, you're supposed to read this in high school, which I didn't. I didn't read it until I was like uh, 38 years old, probably, maybe in my late 30s. And it just, it just I mean, it, it, it's a good read, uh, this article. And then he talks about kind of, well, what if you change it to today, mother has died, instead of mother died today, which is smoother, more natural rendering. But if you change that, is that changing the meaning? Rendering the line as mother died today completely neglects the specific ordering of ideas that offer insight into Mersault's uh, inner psyche. And this is this is the part I wanted to quote here. Throughout the course of the novel, the reader comes to see Mersault as a character who li- who first and foremost first and foremost lives for the moment. Uh, he does not consciously dwell on the past, nor does he worry about the future. What matters is today. The single most important factor of his being is right now. And then it kind of goes in not far behind, though, is Mama. Maman. Marcel shares a unique relationship with his mother. And it's just just an interesting way of looking at and looking at translation and things. Uh, this loss, the loss of mother, drives the action of the novel, leading ex- ex- inexorably to the end, the final period that hangs over over all things else uh, passing. Early in the book, Camus links the death of Mersault's mother to with the uh, oppressive, ever-present sun. So then we went to get to the climax. We see the symbolism. Sun equals loss of mother. Sun causes Mersault to do what he does. And in case we don't get it, Camus makes the connection explicit, saying it was the same sun as the day I buried Maman. And then my forehead especially was hurting me, all of the veins pulsating together beneath the skin. And the final passage in this is, uh, the ordering of the words in Camus' first sentence is no accident. Today is interrupted by Maman's death. The sentence, the one we have yet to see correctly rendered in an English translation of Latranger, should read, Today, Maman died. And this is like one of my favorite passages here, and it kind of summarizes just the, uh, I don't know, the, 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 I can't, I, I can't, I love it when I read stuff that I can't ever possibly recreate, create in some way, and just this, the richness of the imagery, and, and, and then as uh, the New Yorker article said, uh, the capturing of the moment here. At five, there was a loud clanging of streetcars. They were coming from a stadium in our suburb where there had been a football match. Even the back platforms were crowded and people were standing on the steps. Then another streetcar, 
brought back the teams. I knew they were the players by the little suitcase each man carried. They were bawling out their team song, keep the ball rolling, boys. One of them looked up to me and shouted, we licked them. I waved my hand and yelled back, good work. From now on, there was a steady stream of private cars. The sky had changed again. A reddish glow was spreading up beyond the housetops. As dusk set in, the sky grew, street grew more crowded. People were returning from their walks, and I noticed this dapper little man with the fat wife among the passers-by. Children were whimpering and trailing wearily after their parents. After some minutes, the local picture houses disgorged their audiences. I noticed that the young fellows coming from them were taking longer strides and gesturing more vigorously than in ordinary times. Doubtless the picture they had seen was of the Wild West variety. Uh, those who had been to the picture houses in the middle of town came by a little later and looked more sedate, though a few were still laughing. On the whole, however, they seemed languid and exhausted. Some of them remained loitering in the street under my window. A group of girls came by, walking arm in arm, The young men under my window swerved so to brush against them and shouted humorous remarks which made the girls turn their heads and giggle. I recognized them as girls from my part of the town, and two or three of them whom I knew looked up and waved to me. Just then the street lights came on all together, and they made the stars that were beginning to glimmer in the night sky paler still. I felt my eyes getting tired, what with the lights and all the movement I'd been watching in the streets. There were little pools of brightness under the lamps, and now and then a streetcar passed, lighting up a girl's hair, or a smile, or a silver bangle. Soon after this, the streetcars became fewer, and the sky showed velvety black above the trees and the lamps. The street grew emptier, almost imperceptibly, until a time came when there was nobody to be seen, and a cat the first of the evening crossed, unhurrying, the deserted street. And I really love this, this short passage of dialogue where they're talking about marriage. Marie and Mersaldi said they're, they're going back and forth. Uh, yeah, because she says, Jesus, what, what do you think about getting married? And he's kind of detached. And then she said she wondered if she really loved me or not. I, of course, couldn't enlighten her as to that. And after another silence, she murmured something about me being a queer fellow. And I dare say that's why I love you, she added. But maybe that's one day. But maybe that's why one day I'll come to hate you. To which I had nothing to say, so I said nothing. And that's why I love that book. But I also it also stresses me out. I don't know, something about my connection to the character's detachment and the richness of the imagery and the way things turn against, like the way he kind of falls into the into the river of his fate or something. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. I'm not a literary, literary critic, uh, so I don't quite have the terminology to describe uh, my experience when reading the book, but it's just... Uh, uh, whoa. And I guess because I don't like, uh, the, the, the very little internal life, uh, Marisol has, seems to have, 
like he lives externally and through things where I kind of have so much going on. But then as I recognize his bad choices and the inevitability of them, and then things coming full circle on him, I don't know. I just I must have read the book four times right in a row. And the copy I have is a Stuart Gilbert uh, vintage books edition from, uh, it's pretty old. I think it's my dad's book from high school. Um, yeah, 1942, 1946 edition. It, co- it still costs $1.25. It's a paperback. Okay, but if that's the book, The Stranger, we opened with passages from the song, The Stranger, which is on the fifth studio album, according to Wikipedia, by Billy Joel. It came out in 77. And this was his first first uh, critical and commercial breakthrough, uh, spending six weeks at number two. And in 76, uh, Joel had a reliable touring band with Doug Stegmeyer on bass, Liberty DeVito on drums, and Richie Cannata on sax, flute, clarinet, and organ. And Joel had written a bunch of new songs and wanted to use his touring band in the studio, as he had done on Turnstiles. He met with George Martin, the producer for the Beatles, uh, who he wanted him to produce, but Martin kind of showed interest but didn't want to use Joel's band. So Joel met with uh, veteran New York City producer Phil Ramone, and they got along great. They said it was a blast recording the album, and it contains nine songs, uh, one of which is The Stranger. Uh, And there's also an untitled uh, two-minute instrumental hidden track, which is a reprise of the strong Originally, uh, Billy Joel wanted the melody to be played by some sort of instrument, but after Joel demonstrated the me- melody by whistling it, Phil Ramone convinced him to whistle instead, which was a, a big part of the song. And uh, I guess there's not too much written about the song itself, uh, other than the lyrics. It's a little bit more about the masks we wear uh, than the... Uh, it's not really about the book, The Stranger... But, you know, it has the stranger in it. And then, you know, if if, uh, truth couldn't be stranger than fiction, uh, we have ourselves a three-eyed raven, uh, Max von Sydow. And we have a book, and then we have a movie that as a kid I think we had on VHS or something, so I saw it about a thousand times called Strange Brew. So it has a connection to the show. It was a 1983 Canadian comedy uh, Strange Brew, also known as The Adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie's Strange Brew. Uh, and it pe- featured the pro- uh, popular uh, Second City television characters, Bob and Doug McKenzie, played by Dave Thomas and our beloved Rick Moranis. We, we love Dave Thomas, too, but uh, beloved Rick Moranis, uh, who also served as uh, co-directors. Uh, co-stars included Max von Sydow, Paul Dooley, Lynn Griffith and Angus McGinnis, uh, loosely based on elements of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Most of the film was shot in uh, southern Ontario, Toronto, Scarborough, Kitchener, and Hamilton. Uh, the plot of the movie, if you, if you don't see it, is uh, two unemployed brothers, Bob and Doug McKenzie, 
uh, place a mouse in a beer bottle in an attempt to blackmail the book, local beer store into giving them free beer and are told to take up the matter at the brewer, Elsinore Brewery instead. After presenting the mouse uh, to the management, they are given jobs inspecting the bottles for mice on the bottling line at the plant. Uh, but we soon learn that the evil brewmeister Smith, played by Max von Sydow, is perfecting a secret plan to take over the world uh, by placing a mind-controlled drug in Elsinore beer, which, you know, controls the minds of the people that drink it when they hear certain musical tones. And they're also testing it out on, uh, like, uh, a mental health uh, facility that's nearby, and they find out about it, and they're, they're investigating a slapstick comedy. It's like, you know, a, kid, a kid's dream come true. It's got all the elements. Uh, some stuff about production. 81, Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, they had a big comedy album, The Great White North, sold a million copies. And they wanted to parlay that into movies because uh, John Candy had just uh, had a big movie. And then they kind of had some trouble with some old contracts, and they were trying to figure out how to make the movie. They hired Steve Jarnett, according to Wikipedia, to do the first draft, uh, who said they wanted to base the movie on Hamlet, but it was too close to Hamlet, uh, and he needed to be more creative. Moranis and Thomas's agents sent the script to a bunch of studios, and then they made a deal with MGM, uh, based not on the script, but on the record sales. Uh, the breakout, the potential, and the fact that it was being advertised on a te- television show. Uh, but they were unhappy with the script because Bob and Doug are improvised characters done in comic voices. And they felt that nobody but themselves could write for these characters. So Thomas began rewriting the script without Moranis, who was now uncertain about doing the film. After Thomas got the first 50 pages done, Moranis took a look at it, and then they started rewriting it. However, they weren't sure how much they could get done, how much they could legally change, uh, but they did a bunch of changes, including like adding an, another movie to it uh, uh, that Bob and Doug were making. Uh, Thomas remembers that the script was far more bizarre and conceptual in the beginning. Sounds like this podcast. If we had been able to rewrite the whole thing, we could have made the whole thing like that. Originally, Mirandis and Thomas were not going to direct, but they ended up doing so with the guidance of Jack Grossberg, who had produced uh, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen movies, with a budget of $5 million. Uh, before filming... All the major breweries wanted the McKenzie Brothers in beer advertisements, uh, but they got Molson Brewery. But once they found out there was a joke about a mouse in a beer bottle uh, and that they were using it to, to get free beer, no brewers wanted to do it. They couldn't even go do it in a film in a beer store. Uh, so they had to use a, a Tim Hortons uh, uh, to film it. Uh, and then they ended up having to do a beer store and spend a bunch of money to make make a fake beer store. Uh, Stranger Brew currently holds a 71% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes with 81% from the users. In a review in the New York Times, Janet Maslin wrote, Anyone who's partial McKenzie's humor doubtless has a fondness for beer. Maybe save, this is paraphrasing, but save your money and spend it on beer. 
Uh, Gary Arnold in his review for Washington Post, neither triumph nor fiasco. Strange Brew leaves plenty of room for improvement. In the Globe and the Mail, Jay Scott wrote, What's terrific about the McKenzie brothers is their offhand depiction of two English-Canadian working-class dimlets. Uh, what's terrific about the movie is it's equally offhand surrealism. And yeah, I mean, as a kid, I haven't seen this movie, so I don't know if it holds up, but uh, I don't remember loving it as a kid. A sequel to the film, Homebrew, was planned for was planned for production in 1999, though financing fell through. It was written by Dave Thomas and Paul Flaherty. Flaherty was going to direct. Dan Aykroyd was on board. And they were just about to start filming in July of 1999 in Toronto uh, when the financing didn't work out. So that's too bad. Um, but yeah, Strange Brew, you, you know, uh, you could check it out. And then in all the small world irony, this article just came out uh, May 18th, 2016, literally just came out. Uh, Winona Ryder has a Netflix series called Stranger Things, believe it uh, believe it or not. Uh, she's going to appear in, in a part of this Netflix show, Stranger Things, uh, which is being described as a love letter to the ubiquitous cult classics of the 80s. Uh, it's presumably a reference to films like The Lost Boys uh, rather than Fast Times or Ferris Bueller's and not some combination of them. At least that's the impression they got. Uh, it's got uh, some uh, more adult content. But well, Ryder uses a rotary phone. Uh, it might be a, a spooky mystery that's at the heart of the show. Uh, Ryder plays a mother. The equalizer is David Harbour as a police chief. Uh, when the series was announced last summer, Matthew Modine isn't pictured, nor is his role described in the synopsis below. Uh, but he's supposed to be in it. It hits July 15th, so a couple more weeks. Uh, set in Hawkins, Indiana in 1980s, uh, Stranger Things chronicles uh, uh, some mysteries, unraveling of them, of a top-secret uh, government stuff, kind of X-Files. Uh, uh, a love letter of the ubiquitous cult classics of the 80s, a coming-of-age story for three boys that draws this quaint community into a world where mysteries link, lurk beneath the sur surface. So, how about that, you know? Uh, it kind of sounds a little bit like Goonies, too. All right, so that's it for Stranger Stuff uh, this week. Are you ready, Simon? I'm ready, Padman. This is improving this adventure. All right, so let's just go straight into. You're not going to criticize. I am, I am critical, but I'm not criticizing. Oh wow! So even internally, hey, let us move forward with the show, Padman. Tommen, are you feeling all right, Padman? I've never felt more not all right or not bad at the same time. Right, Sapounce? Hey, Amen, man. Yes, I am neither plus nor minus man. Okay, let's do this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another K-Pounce from Time Hour Adventure Time on K-Pounce, the radio station of best friendship. The radio station inspired by friendship, K-Pounce Radio. Okay, Padman, 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Tom and Pounce on the road in the journey to Zelv Discovery. Uh, deep within the forbidden jungles lies a great temple called Zelv Discovery. Within that temple, treasures innumerable to count. Uh, but thus far in all of human history, no one has been both brave enough and friendly enough and witty enough to discover the treasures within and beat all the tests. But two heroes have worked their way through the jungle and have entered the temple on their quest to go deep into self-discovery. Two best friends, two beacons of bravery, such Tommen and Sir Pounce. Uh, join us, won't you, on another adventure of Tom and Pounce's Zelv Discovery. Okay, so according to this map, we should go here, and we should just take this here. Now, don't step on those, right, Sir Pounce? No, man, no, man. Right, no, yes, I don't know. Just those those ones with the squiggly, see, the, this is what the map says, squiggly, like a cat's tail, I guess that makes it easy. And then we just, oh dear, what is this door is closing and it's uh, pushing against us. This is, remember when we went on that uh, that ride the Podman took us in, the Illuminable Doors. Mason, what is that called, the Illuminable Door? He was spinning those spinning doors. Oh, no, that was someone in a movie, but I thought it was me having joy in those doors. Uh, but, oh, boy, we're in another room now, and who is that at the back of the room there in some sort of... Uh, a ceremonial garb. Who are you, sir? I am the keeper of abstraction, Tommen, and you are trapped within the halls of imagery of ununderstandability. Okay, well, uh, I understand what you're saying, so that's already incorrect. Uh, I need to get through to the journey. I'm on a journey to the Zelf's Discovery. Are there any treasures within these walls of innumerability or whatever you call them? You cannot possibly escape. No one has. Uh, for I will use my abstractions to confuse and defeat you. Okay, but why would you want to do that is my question. Because I'm just here trying to get to the... Like, do, you, do you just stay here all the time? We are here to protect the great treasure of self-discovery and test those to see if the worthy ones will come, and they must pass our tests or be defeated, for only the worthy ones can under, under uh, discover. Okay, okay, pull it together. Uh, only the worthy ones will discover self-discovery. Okay, well, advance word might have gotten to you that I have the cat that put the braveness in bravery, so I no longer need to be afraid. Uh, so pounce. Round and down. Yes, round in town is what he usually says, uh, ambassador of uh, abstraction. Uh, please bring your test, for I was a boy, then I was a man. Then I was a boy, you know, and, and then I was the same mother, mother. But I'm no longer. I'm. I'm no longer here to be irritated. I'm here to take on your challenge. So give it to me. Uh, wow, this Padman. This is working. This tests are uh, uh, changing me. 
Okay, I'll just focus because it's recording. Oh, okay. Uh, give me your abstraction. Whatever it is, I'll beat it. No problem. Well, I doubt you'll even be under the, able to understand it. Uh, okay, what is that? It is a wall of abstraction. Oh, well, it's lowering in front of me. It's lowering in front of me. It seems to be some, some things written on it. Oh, what is that? A yellow circle, a blue circle. It is, uh, what is it? What am I supposed to do with this? I guess you don't understand the meaning of challenge, do you? I do, okay. Then there's a black rectangle. Yes, I know what a rectangle is, a buffoon. And then a red rectangle. And a line going through it, I guess, a bounce. What do you think? Mason, I name. Oh, yes, you're right. The uh, line penetrates the uh, black and red lines. Is, we, I think we're supposed to figure out what this means. So a red rectangle or line, a black line, rectangle. Well, that's a rectangle, so bounce, right? Handsome man. And both are faded. Now the line penetrates uh, both the black and the red. It goes out the back of the red deck, much like a... Uh, you know when those things they feed us, uh, shababs, uh, like the meat shababs. Uh, but as we go down, it looks like it's, it was painted on old paper. And then there's a yellow circle. It's paler than a sun. It looks like an unhealthy sun. Oh, boy. Suppose uh, you're reading me. And then there's a small blue circle in front of it, obscuring a full of... A blue, small blue moon, like the moon, you know, you know the moon's a bounce. Okay, so on a healthy sun, oh dear, a blue circle in front, or is it a hole within the sun? It's off-center, a bounce. Yes, man. Yes, the line is in front of it, the penetrating line does not penetrate the sun, but the line's above it. It's a bit of a stick. Famous and it does not circles do not end, you're right, Sir Pounce. Uh, oh, but I see what you're saying. Each circle the sun is just not one circle, but many circles expanding outward. Uh different shades of yellow, you're right, Sir Pounce. Uh interesting. Now, weeks ago, I would have just pressed at this and bumped against it, but I think this is the puzzle. This many-circled sun that does not look well. Is the key of this blue thing within... Is it within the sun or without the bounce? Uh, that is the question. Is it a hole in the sun? Is it a moon within the sun? Or is it a moon in front of the sun? Is what we need to figure out. Is that right? Uh, this is suppose Padman, that's a trick. I'm trying to trick the uh, the wizard to give me the answer. I did this once with the maester. Actually, Joff taught me this. Oh, you won't trick us, uh, Sir Tommen, with your little games. You must determine it on your own. 
Okay, well, anyway, that was a test just to see, you know, I, I, I am so brave now. Well, maybe so, so, so we don't know those answers, Sapounce. So why does the wine, is that a tool uh, that the sixth son has used uh, to spear the things that hang above it? One black, one red, and now Lannisters are red, Sapounce. You think... Oh, and gold cloaks, uh, oh, and gold is gold, you're right, but it's unhealthy, the color, I don't like this color, Sapounce. I have some own. Yes. So the sixth son has a tool, what would the, uh, I guess the, the, uh, the black rectangle could be anything, night, uh, heavy things, look at how the, Look at the, the the line, the tool line, the kebab line. See how it's different colors, Sapounce, if you study it there? Like somewhat, like it, it does look like wood almost, like it's a well, well-worn well wood. Amen. Uh, so maybe the tool is holding those things up above his head, even though it would make sense with the balance. It could be, it's just a, a test, you know. And the sun does look like it's holding those things up or keeping things. He's holding so much up, this sick little sun, holding so much, so much hangs above his head. Heavy, what was that podman said? Heavy is the head. Oh, that's the crown, I believe. The red crown of the Lannisters in a darker crown. That the sun has to hold just above his sick head. So that's okay, so Pounce. If you look at the look on the, uh, the, 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 the guy in the back, you're going to be opening this door soon. I'm one step away from solving this. Okay, so the sun, okay, so he's, uh, he's growing and expanding, but the, each expanding circle, he gets a little bit thinner. So he's the blue within. You say, could a boy, could a could a son have a baby? Sir Pounce, you know that looks like when they, you know, they draw the pictures of the baby within. There's a baby blue within the sun, and I know this about that's weird. I know, but it's true. Look at the painting. And yes, now I know this is a painting. I'm no, I'm no fool. I, I'm surrounded by tapestries and paintings. You know, I'm. But what does it mean that the the the, the sun has a little blue? Oh, you're right, Sir Pounce. It's surrounded by a crescent of white. And the white seems to protect it. Uh, but it just does not look like it's integrating with the other sun. That's what I. Uh, that's what troubles me, Sir Pounce. So that makes me think that it is a hole. That is something is missing within the poor sick sun. Something blue has carved out its... Oh, goodness, why did it take me so long, Sapounce? It's the blue-faced... It's the blue-faced man, of course. Oh, but who is larger? That is my question now to you, Sapounce. Who is growing and who is static? The sun is bigger, even though it has a blue hole from the blue-faced man. The sun is the one holding everything up. The sun is the one with circles going and expanding out. And the sun can handle the blue hole within it, uh, uh, probably. 
because he's doing the best he can to hold up all the weight above him, to keep on growing, even though with each stage of growth, part of him feels weaker, and he doesn't look as healthy as he should be. Even this powerful blue hole, so uh, powerful in looks, uh, even if it is within him, it cannot stop him from growing. And that is my answer for your test, uh, uh, Sir Wizard. Well, you have passed again, Sir Sam, and I will open the doors and you will pass on to the next phase on your journey to self-discovery. Your ability to deduce and infer is very impressive, and your ability to be outside of yourself and see yourself and discover you defeated our most brilliant test thus far, and you have shown yourself worthy of both love and attention, affection and pride. You are truly... Worthy of going to the next test on the road to self-discovery. What an honor. Good day. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Batman. That was not bad. This, this is a puzzling picture. This is very good. I like this. Uh, I think I understand. That didn't feel very adventury, but it was hard. I enjoyed figuring this puzzle out. So, thank you. And you could close it out. Uh, Sapphans and I are going to go. Yes, man. Yes, later, man. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that concludes another afternoon of Tom and Pounce on the road to self-discovery. Thank you for joining us on K-Pounce Radio. Uh, Crone, Sweet Sweet Crone, Miller Smith, Barky, Jester, Hound. Uh, I think that's everybody. Uh, Crone, Sweet Sweet Crone, Miller Smith, Barky, Jester, Hound. Hopefully I'm not missing any gods, uh... I did miss the casting list, though, so, and I know it's probably a waste of a pair of prayer to go through our casting list, gods. Also, I didn't send out a memo because you never responded to any of my memos last season. So I said, why bother, you know? But I don't know, gods, just in case you didn't get the memo, me and the jester, you know, mentally, I figure you could, if you could read minds, you know, I don't got to write a memo. It's already written. Uh, but I was thinking, like, uh, so I talked to the, uh, not the jester, who's that, uh, Miller? Miller, I'm just kidding. I mean, of course I know who you are. And I said, Gads, we need to get into, he said, we need to metaphor, metaphor, metaphorize this. And I was thinking, you might like the Goonies, and that would be a good way to help me. I forgot it. Well, I guess you, you know, you don't help me without you doing any work. I figure, you know. I know how you like to work with, uh, you know, like, uh, I think like, like they, the metaphor you guys would use is a pebble, you know, pebble drops in the lake and you're the dis- most distance or distant ripple, but it wouldn't be a pebble. It'd be one of those, um, helicopter leaf things that drops into the lake and then, or butterfly water striders leg. But anyway, I said, well, I don't get, you know, I, that's too, too, you know, I'm too, I'm not, I'm hardwired for anxiety and fear. So I need something more concrete or, or they'll just distract me from my lack of fakes, whatever you want to frame it, gods.
Uh, so I was telling Miller about the uh, Goonies, and I said, well, geez, that wouldn't that be a good way to do it? Like, uh, I I know I'm Martha Plimpton, whose character is still, uh, and then, uh, so there's Brent. Holy cow, I think we have way more characters than gods. So that's a problem. I don't know who Mikey is. Crone, I think I gave you a really good role, you know, because I said, well, the Crone deserves him. Were you Mikey? I don't think so. Chester is uh, Malt or whatever his name is. Um, Data, Data, was, was that you? Anyway, guys, we'll figure that part out. You know, it's not, it's not that important. It's important we adventure together. Uh, you know, in, in so, so, uh, oh, cause maybe I, I thought I was Mikey cause that's who I identify. I don't know if I identify with him the most either. I guess Martha Plimpton's taking on a much bigger role in this version. So starts in kind of the, I guess they call it in the, in the, they say, you know, the regular war, you know, regular situation at Mikey's house, Mikey and Martha and Brent now a family of three. And Martha's brainy sister, Mikey, is, you know, is taking on a lesser role now. Whoever, whichever god would be hound. Oh, I guess you're Brent, got hound. So it definitely, I think you're Brent. Mikey, so, you know, but Martha, she, she, uh, she, she's found out. She's keeping it from her two brothers uh, that the family... Uh, the, the place they rents, you know, they're getting, you know, the landed gentry is starting to expand their hold on the renters. Uh, real world problem, gods. I mean, you know, my rent is like, uh, 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 what is it? The uh, market's double or, or more. So this could be, you know, I could be dealing with this. So just keep it, keep it, pay extra attention to that part of the story, okay? And my rent's still not cheap, so just so you know, Crone, you know, if 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 you know rental increases, don't tell me about it because I would just curl up in a ball anyway. But so they find out they they I assume rent a place, and, and it looks like a nice. Uh, and I think we're in some place. Let's just say we're in Augusta, Maine, gods. And me, Martha, uh, the, the central character that all everything revolves around from this point forward. I mean, there is a, a montage with Chunk at the beginning. That's parts awesome in the Fratellis. Uh, but, you know, Martha, me, me, myself, uh, just call me Plimpton. And, and, you know, Martha Plimpton, that sounds nice better together. That's why it's her name. Martha Plimpton, better together. This episode sponsored by Martha Plimpton Incorporated. So, you know, she, I guess the character will be, anyway, I'm in my room. Tiger Beat is being, you know, I'm drawing nasty faces on Tiger Beat that my friend left there. Listening to some tunes. You know, I'm both brooding and, you know, ridding, being rid of, what's the, uh, I'm angst-ridden, so what is that if I'm being, you know, ridden with angst? Uh, and if, you know, I had overheard my parents talking about the foreclosure, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to determine 
right right now I'm acting out, you know, drawing on the faces of these Tiger Beach celebrities to, you know, say, Ralph Macchio, you know, I'm gonna, you know, whatever. It's just me, you know, bad, you know. And then Mikey comes. Mikey's been, maybe Mikey's hiding under my bed because then I start to talk out a lot. I start to brainstorm. You know, Mikey's always in my business, guys, always in my business. So Brent comes in, guys, and he says, Brant, whatever Brant. I think his name might be Brant or Bran. Probably not Bran. Brant, he comes in, he says, hey, sis, what's this shaking? You know, and then he tries to do, you know, we, we do the deflection part, guys, but then we see how close we really are. Because, yeah, he says, tells me about his crush on Andy. I think that's you, Crone, maybe. And how, you know, she's with the rich kids at school. And how hard it is. And I said, well, Brant, man, you know, you're, you're strapping. So you got that, that you got that going for you. Probably don't wear the shorts on outside of sweatpants. No offense. Uh, maybe just, just, uh, and, you know, just be yourself, Brant. You know, that we had, we share a moment. And then he goes, he said, right before he says, hey, sis, it looks like you're, are you ridding yourself of angst? And I said, no, 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 Brant, the opposite. And he says, what have you done to this Tiger Beat uh, magazine? It looks like it. And they said, well, geez, are you okay, sis? And I say, holy genuine moment. And I say, yeah, I'm okay, but I don't want to talk about it. Well, we should talk. You know, I'm, I'm cutting the chase, guys. I don't know, guys, do you use metaphors up there? Because I just, this is a metaphorical part. I'm only Martha Plimpton, okay? You're the rest of the support system. And the parents, those are like the titans or whatever the hell, you know, that you don't, or chaos, you know. So you just pay attention for your parts here, Brant, Brent, you know, coming in and saying, well, okay, yeah, yeah, but my, my, yeah, Brent, well, I'm, I'm worried, but I don't want to talk about him. Well, you could tell me, well, I don't want Mikey to find out. And then Mikey perks up, you know, maybe Mikey was, I don't, I don't know, maybe Mikey has a crush on my friend too. And then I say, well, don't worry about it. Then Fratelli's drive by, just so you know, that was what that noise was. Maybe the Fratelli's were those in, internal problems I have. Maybe, maybe that was it, Gads. So then I say, well, don't tell Mikey. Okay, I won't tell Mikey. Well, we're going to lose the place. Uh, Dad's going to lose his job at the museum, you know, because you Property, t they say they don't want to pay property tax, but they want all the property is what it, what it could best gather. And they say, that's why, and then they say, they say geez, and, and, you know, mom's trying to do her best. I think she's a real estate agent, uh, but, and, you know, geez, it's hard. Uh, and so we're going to lose our place, the goondacks, where all of us working class people live. And so that's it, right? That's the way of the world. And so it goes, as KV says, you know, and so it goes. And then Brant says, you know, who, what? And I say, don't worry about it, Brant. Just keep looking good. You know, get it, get, get another head, change your headband. And then, you know, but Brant says, well, we should do something. And I say, well, we can't do anything. You know, we're powerless against the systematic, you know, military industrial stuff. So don't worry, don't even worry about it. We'll just, uh, 
You know, I'm going to go get go go to school and get educated. And then you know what? I, I'll deal with it, Brant. You'll you're going to be one day. You'll be a stockbroker. It's 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 in the cards for you. But yeah, there's nothing we could do. We need to come up with like eighty thousand dollars. You know. I guess I don't know because we'd have to purchase we'd have to purchase these properties before the rich guys do, or maybe they purchased our parents' mortgages. I can't remember. Did our parents have an adjustable rate mortgage and it came due? But so we, we and then Mikey sneezes, or maybe Mikey has trouble breathing. So then we take him out. We say, "Oh, here's your asthma medication, Mikey. What are you doing under there?" as a brother and sister team. And Mikey says, uh, but Mikey's playing it, guys. You know, that's the other thing. This is a fiction. So Mikey's trying to bring out even more of the best of me is Martha Plimpton. Says, well, I know about this uh, hidden map up in the attic. Uh, and I say, okay, let me deal with it. I'm the most capable member of this family. Then we then Chunk and Data and Mouth show up eventually, and we leave out the uh, the the stuff the other stuff because it was kind of offensive with the poor housekeeper. I mean, not you know, so it's just we don't we leave that part out, and it didn't make us say how why do we have a housekeeper if we can't pay? So we just skipped that part. We go up to the attic, all of us. And I accidentally find the map, you know, that would be some sort of divine intervention. Probably Barky. Huh, Barky, who did I cast you as? Jester's mouth, right? Did I say that? So we got Miller Smith and McCrone. Uh, not important right now, guys, you know, because you, you could be multi- so then, you know, the divine, oh, the maiden, the lovely maiden, she just blows on the wind, and, you know, we find the map. Then we talk about the rich stuff. You know, then we get to the leap of faith, gods. Uh, I don't know who represents the fear within me internally, but maybe it's all of you. You're testing me. Yeah, that's it. You guys are always testing. So they say, Martha, this is a terrible idea following this uh, thing. And then Chunk talks about the Fratellis. And then, you know, even everybody says, well, we should just give up. You know, this is, a, this is, a, this is, a, you know, it's just like you say, Martha. And so it goes. And I say, well, geez, I'm frozen with fear too. And, you know, over analysis. Uh, but if we could combine our forces, I think. And work together. You know what, guys? No, no, no. That's wrong, too. What if we just have an adventure and try? It seems scary. Uh, but what's our choice? Paralysis by analysis is my middle name, you know. Is the, the smart middle child. I need to change, too. So maybe we do need to do this, even if it's, Grant, I know you're older and, you know, not wiser, but, uh, and Mikey, you know, you've been pushed out of the lead role, but, but uh, you know, you'll, you'll still get, you'll, you'll get your moment with Sloth. Don't worry, we'll give you that. You know, I'll find my humanity some other way. But, you know, so, yes, you, you're all right. What do you think? Should we just do this as an adventure? 
because we don't, you know, it's the day, I, I think it's summer break or something anyway. Let's get our bikes and let's go and see what happens. All of us together for fun and to see together. And then we don't ditch Brent. Uh, maybe, I, I guess I even forgot about that part, but you'll just come with us, Brent. Uh, because uh, me, see, Marcia, what are you doing getting involved with this stuff? And Mike, you know, I got to keep an eye on Mikey anyway, because he's so, how did he end up in the lead role? Well, it's still likable. It's only likability and good acting was why. And that was before they knew they needed this, you know, because then they, hey, gads, no questions, please. And there we head off through the beautiful Maine afternoon, misty. Uh, shrouded in mystery. You know, there's jokes uh, interspersed everywhere and some physical humor. And we're off on our adventure, guys, just that and that, a process of adventure. Yes, we were looking for certainty for poor Martha, uh, but, but we know she's going to get so much more. All right, guys, that was a pretty good prayer. What do you think? Uh, so thanks for your time. Uh, thank, our adventure's begun. I'll make sure to get the casting right next time, guys. But anyway, Crone, sweet, sweet Crone. Miller Smith, Barky Jester, Hound Dog, God. Uh, thank you for uh, joining me uh, on a quest. Not, you know, we got the balloons or whatever, too. All right, guys, thanks. Good night. Yeah, so I'm thinking, I, I got a new business idea, so we'll just like, figure out, you know, I said, well, what if I start another wacky business? And he said, wackier than a sleep podcast. It's not, I said, yeah, wackier than a sleep podcast. It's not a business. Exactly. So I went down to Sand Hill Road. I said, ratemyresume.com. They said, get out of my office. And they said, you mean the good kind? Like you're saying, get out of town, right? And they said, well, just keep going. And they said, here, they said, I already tested, I already did a beta or an alpha with my own resume. So here's the ratings I resume got. Or the podcast. And if you want to do that, you can just leave my podcast.com slash iTunes. They said, Motec 8 said about my my resume, you have five stars. Uh, fell asleep in a few minutes. Hilarious and smart. There you go. Uh, hire me now. Oh, I'm not applying for a job. I'm applying for a uh, investment in RateMyResume.com. I haven't heard yet a single story because I always fall asleep during the intro to the resume. Like I said, you have an intro. I said, this is RateMyResume.com. You could go on there and rate it if you want to rate my resume. Smart and effective. Uh, one of a kind. I said, hey, who wouldn't hire me? And he said, will there be, will the reviews be attached to your resume? I said, of course, it's a marketing thing, bro. Wouldn't come down to Sand Hill Road unless I had a great idea. How about this one? Katie Hugs Connie from, this is Australia's rating my resume, so just so you know. This resume works, five stars. How skeptical, as most people are. Hardcore uh, insomniac didn't see how this resume could help me sleep, but it's uh, funny, rambling, and no pressure storytelling. Uh, Jenny Tope uh, says this, this resume is life-changing. Generous, five stars, loving gift to the world, unusual talents. Isn't this the kind of thing you might see in a resume? 
ability to uh, uh, multitask simultaneously and interesting and distracting is with it works with brain bots as they're called on the show boring enough you don't care to the end funny gentle thoughtful quirky beautiful uh, show not for everyone but if you like the other kilter or think too much it might be for you works awesome one, two, three, four, five, six, nine moons with an okay from the UK. He says, great resume. Hard to sleep during exams from thinking too much. This resume really helped. Uh, how about Jai Kenna, who said my resume is surprisingly effective. Five stars, insomnia, tossing and turning, weaned off of uh, sleep aids, other options, uh, uh, to take their mind off stuff, they read my resume before they tried music and TV shows, uh, podcasts, uh, TED Talks, but they were too interesting, and then they'd have to re-listen. Then they found uh, Sleep With Me, Riz, R- Drew's resume. Crazy. Uh, resume, not, not a person. Still early on, but they love it. Interested, mind doesn't wander, incoherent, uh, no need to rewind. Pancake recipes, recipes, fence constructions, and on and on. Uh, How about this resume? Brilliant resume, sleepy in STG. That's from the UK. Uh, Thank you so much. Give it a try. Give this resume a try. It works. Uh, How about Anthony Giovinanzo? Uh, you could be snoozing already. Read this resume, five stars, you'll be asleep in minutes. How about Coco Movie Loco? It sounds like something I used to, I think I drank that a few times. It did not go well for me. Uh, I dare you to read this whole resume. I've been using this podcast, help me fall asleep for months. However, it's really difficult to explain, rarely stay awake. Funny, likable, stream like rambling in my mind. Uh, I don't know if there's any pro- making any progress. Inner monologue leads you to thoughts that can keep you awake. Uh, that never can keep you awake. It's a gift. I recommend it. That's a resume. How about this one? Uh, this resume will put you to sleep instantly. Five stars. Love this resume so much. Trucellant is 65. Trucellant, true, truculent, maybe. There's nothing about my pronunciation in the reviews. Emma Call from Australia. Adore this resume and scoots. You won't regret trying and sticking with it. Getting better at being boring in an engaging way. Oh, this one, Raylin55. That's my dad's favorite store, Raylin's. I'm not kidding. Still loving this resume. Six months now. Never not worked this resume. Certainly enjoy the distractions given to sleep. Introduction. Wake up. Put it on. Uh, never listen to the whole thing, but they love the stories and the meandering. Thanks so much for being committed to my resume. How about this one? This is a good one. Flying Saucer Writer. I'd like to meet the... Jesus, is that you, Agent Mulder? Agent Mulder, can you hear me? Flying Saucer Writer. Uh, this pi- this resume is Pied Piper of resumes. Had some stuff going on which made my sleep, sleep stuff worse. 
started listening to music, but it got irritating. Then they discovered podcasts, then they discovered this resume, and they've been sleeping with my resume ever since. Well, a copy of it, I would say. Hopefully it's on that bonded paper. Nothing like a little bonded paper at bedtime. If you ever had one of someone just tell you a story like when you were a kid, that's what Scoots does. Just That's what his resume does, too. Tells us a CV, a story of his vital curriculums. He's got a gift for gift for gab. Gab, 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 gabs of goop. Uh, what a wonderful resume. That's from Bookworm. Appreciate this whimsical approach to resumes, helping the listeners calm down. May seem like a criticism, but they've listened. They've never heard all the way through. Not a criticism. How about Snow, Sophie Snoozerton in the UK? Best resume ever. Five stars. This resume is great. It's a charming, first narrated resume they've ever had. That was good and charming. Recommended. Uh, looking forward to more resumes. Let's well, see. If you're looking forward to a second resume, it's probably a problem. Unless I guess the next time I'll leave some stuff off. How about this one? This sounds cool to hang with. Barnack 13. I think that was in a Who episode. Old Barnack 13 from the Barnacle Planet. Uh, thank you for this resume. First review ever of a resume or a podcast. Amazing. No sleeping pills. They thought this is a weird resume and then fell asleep. They skip the recaps, but they re-listen the ones they like. This is a nice sounding Laramie Esquire. It sounds like it, you know, it's like a, like a place I'd like to live, even though it doesn't. They say, where do you live? What, what magazines do you read? Laramie Esquire magazine. The, the, the version of Esquire for those of us that smoke Laramie's. This resume is cool and good. Don't write reviews, but this resume is magic powers. Uh, least I could do is raise my hand and say, this works, this is a nice thing, and the world could, oh, thank you, and the world could use more things like this. Thank you. Uh, life-saving resume, that's from Punk Rock, about 43. You know, when they can't sleep and they're, they're fed up, they read some resumes. And this is a resume that conked them out. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Punk Rock, Beth. Uh, Weirdo Dan. Weirdo Dan. Weirdo Dan. Thanking you for your review uh, from the UK. It's a truly amazing resume. It works. A great resume. It sends me to sleep. Another one from the UK. Willie Taylor, 1995. Young resume reader from the UK. Uh, this sleep with me resume has changed the way I sleep. I love this resume. Best resume ever because I can sleep on Not only can I sleep because of it, I can sleep on it because it's uh, one page. Used to have insomnia and now I don't. Refreshing change. Uh, funly, winny, witty, and endlessly silly. I mean, you should put my resume on that thing like where you dry your hands, the circular thing, so it is endless. The endless resume. Thanks. Uh, here's something I'd like to have for dessert. Uh, Jala Mode. How you doing? Jala Mode. Uh, pure resume magic. Have difficulty falling asleep. Tried everything. Then I tried rating resumes. Works every single time. I have no idea how it does it, but uh, this is my resume hero. Uh, how about this one? Malloy. 
underscore uh, call sign brain bots. This resume has helped me so much with falling asleep. It took a few episodes, you know, to get worse. It, we're used to, took five or six reads through Scoots' resume. Uh, stick with it. If you don't get immediate results, it'll be worth it. Uh, how about this one? BM from Norway. My resume's hitting it in Norway, and the ratings are coming in. Give this resume a read. It's really good. The resume's great. Worth giving a shot. If you got a busy brain and your thoughts, it's distracting and engaging, and you can drift off. Thank you. Uh, here's another good one. Ultimate Resume Buster from Cheap Trick Roadie Trucker. So Trucker, Roadie Trucker works with Cheap Trick probably. No matter how keyed up I am, this podcast puts me to sleep. Can't believe how well it works. Thanks, Cheap Trick. Roadie Trucker. And then another one. This like reminds me of Tony, Tony, Tone. Late Tony. Works for me. Love to fall asleep. Uh, Erring Boy. Earring boy? How do you spell earring? I think it is earring boy. It's a tough word to read for me. Earring boy from the USA. Resume is even better when you donate a dollar. Thank you. Or more. Gosh, thanks, Scoots. Thank you. Uh, an overthinker writes my resume. Writes my resume five stars. Grows on you. Nothing like a resume that grows on you. And ind- indispensable. Whoa. I've been listening to six months. Uh, not unusual to fall asleep in 20 minutes. Well, he- here's one. The FCC might be called FAA. No, the FTC. They might call about my resume. Because the great scoop says my resume is better than drugs. Don't take that lightly. Resume is a joy, funny, wonderful, incredible been listening for months, convinced it would become immune, but wrong. Unlike with other stuff, you can't build up a tolerance to boring stories. You got that right. Uh, worth five bucks a month. Thank you. Every single night they listen. Uh, how about this one? DBM 6745. That's a droid re- reviewing my resume. Unreal. Five stars. That's a droid. That's a resume review from a droid, just so you know. Don't know how it works, but it does. Started listening before I know when I'm sound asleep. Before resumes, I tried everything. Meditation, white noise, waves, visualization. Nothing's as effective. Also love how the sponsors are related to sleep. Awesome products. Thank you. Uh, you'll never hear the end of an episode. Can't fall asleep? This podcast, can, this resume can fix that. It never made it to the end. XSK1032. And this one comes from the Great White North, uh, Canada. Author Graham says they love my resume. Amazing. A genius resume. Manages to amuse and bore. Spreading the word. Um, and there's a, a chick that. Mary Ann. Thank you. Uh, this is a good one from Australia. Nicola Piccola Pickles. That is cute. And also, it sounds like 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 a a childish Nikola Tex, Tex, Tesla was it Tes, Tesla? Maybe maybe this is one of maybe this is Muskie's baby Nikola Pickle Pickles. 
Uh, say that any, anybody runs into Musky, just say that to Musky, see what he does. Nicola Pickle Pickles. I think it's probably the code to get into a secret lab. You know what didn't get me in a secret lab? My resume, but uh, Nicola Pickle Pickles says it works like a charm. Best resume ever. Thank you. And finally, rolling in here, Nona K from the USA. It's a bless to find this resume. Stops the brain by it's supposed to me to sleep. If you want to review my resume or the podcast, uh, most of the podcasts go sleep with me, podcast.com slash iTunes. Thank you so much for the support, and let's get on to the show. Oh, it's just the end of the show. Holy boy, mackerel. Uh, anyway, thank you. <laughs> and not, we won't be getting on a show. This is a good night. <laughs>